0: I want to just highlight for a minute what um, uh, one of Jonathan's announcements about the 25-year anniversary. Um, I was thinking about that. 25 years, that would have been back in 1990, 1991, and let's see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And um, I was, we had three children, we now have four, Marilyn and I were living in the little town of Raymond, Mississippi, and we had just started uh, our seminary journey and then since that time, we've been lived in three or four different places, and here we are now over that 25-year period. And, and it's the same way with y'all. You know, you think of all that's gone on in your life in the last 25 years. Well, while all that was going on, Grace Van began, and here we are now. So mark that date, February the 28th. Listen for more details, because uh, what, a, what a great testimony, what a great celebration of what the Lord has done. Uh, with a bunch of broken people. He's been faithful to Grace Evangelical Church. Mark that date, our time to celebrate our life together. Um, well, this is the first sermon of the new year, so we got to talk about New Year's resolutions. And I don't know if you've made many resolutions. Uh, I have a hard time keeping resolutions. The one resolution that I've made that I've been able to keep is that I'm not going to make any resolutions and so far, that's worked, that's worked pretty well. Usually, people tend to make the same ones. If you look on the Internet at all these lists of resolutions, what are they? I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to uh, uh, save more and spend less. I'm going to eat a more healthy diet. Then, if you look on lists about the resolutions that are most often broken, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to eat more healthy. I'm going to save more and spend less. But here's a resolution that I'll bet um, many of us have never made, and I want to challenge you, that's the point of this sermon, is I'm going to give you a resolution that I want you to make. And it's this: I want you to have a good conversation, a good conversation. You know, we, we live our lives with a lot of conversations. You know, there's conversations about our, our, our our football team, why they won this bowl game, or why they lost that bowl game, or shopping, or how are you doing, or what did you get, what did you get for Christmas? These news and sports and weather type conversations. Um, who are you going to vote for for president? Who do you think can win? Things that affect our lives, but they're sort of news, sports, and weather. But what I want to challenge you to do is to have a conversation that it's a little bit below the surface, that's a little bit Deeper and more meaningful. You know, think of the conversations you've had in your life. They were down deep enough that they have made an impact, that they have altered your life. I want you to have that type of conversation. That's kind of what I want to challenge you with today as we look at a conversation in the Bible. We're going to look at a conversation between a woman and a man in the country of Samaria, in the town of Sychar. It's in John chapter 4. And we're going to look at the impact that this conversation had upon this woman. She had been coming to this well for quite some time, carrying her water jar in the heat of the day to get water by herself and alone. But she met a man there on this day. And because of the conversation that ensued, the impact that it had caused her to, to leave her water jar behind. Now, what was it about that conversation that caused her to leave her water jar? By the way, this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well is the longest recorded conversation of Jesus in the Bible. So we're going to read it. It's pretty long. We're going to start in the second part of verse 6. the word of the Lord. So Jesus, wearied from as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? That's the word of the Lord. Why would she you leave that water jar? Give you a little background. You know, Jesus had been uh, begun his ministry. He was in what's called the popular phase of his ministry. Uh, he had turned water into wine. He had fed the five thousand. He was healing. He was beginning to gain a reputation. Um, early in the chapter, it says that some of the disciples of John had switched over from John to Jesus, and that was causing a little bit of confusion. But of course, you know, John was excited about that because he is the one who said, "He must increase, while I must." Decrease, but the Pharisees were also raising their eyebrows. They were taking notice of what was going on. And it looked like it would be possible that a confrontation could develop, but Jesus knew that the time wasn't right for that. And so he left Judea and headed on a 60 mile trek up to Galilee. So as he was going on this journey, about 30 miles, he came to a town called Sychar, and he sent the disciples into town. Uh, to to buy some food you know, the thirty mile trip he'd been walking you know that's like going from here to the Burger King in West Memphis I mean it's that long of a walk so he's he's tired and he's resting he's there at the well and he's there lo and behold here comes a woman from the town who had been coming there every day in the heat of the day alone with her water jar to fill it with water. But this day was different. Because this day, she was going to be engaging in a conversation that was going to alter her life forever. Enough to make her leave her water jar and head into town. So who is this woman? And what was it about this conversation, this particular conversation, that caused her to have such a change in the course of her life? Well, what do we know about this Woman, there's a couple of things that we can pick up just from this passage. First, if you look at verse 7, if you look at where they are, she was a Samaritan woman. Well, what's the big deal about that? They were scorned by the Jews, they were looked down upon by the Jews. Why is that? Well, you've been learning actually about them in Dr. Young's series on Nehemiah about 700 and something BC. The Assyrians came in and they captured the 10 northern tribes and deported them to Babylon. And so they, uh, they left a few of the Jews there and then they resettled the area with conquered people. So they were intermarrying and they were involving different religions and different cultures so that over the course of centuries, the children of these people no longer even spoke Hebrew. And the Samaritans claimed their same ancestry that the Jews did, but the Jews would have none of it. They wouldn't buy it. They looked down upon them. In fact, in order to go from Jerusalem up to Galilee, rather than pass through Samaria like Jesus did, most Jews would go all the way around it much longer just so they wouldn't have to pass through this land of the half-breeds. So she was sort of racially and uh, ethnically put down. That's one thing that we know about her. I think there's another thing that we can glean from this that commentators seem to point out in verses six and, uh, well, especially verse seven, and then actually later in verse 16 and 18, she was at the well by herself. That's not the normal way that women would go to the, to the well to get their water for their cooking and for their cleaning and for their drink. They would go together, but she was alone. And not only was she alone, but she, she didn't come in the morning in the cool of the day or in the evening. She came in the, the, the heat in the middle of the day. Why is that? Well, if you look later around verse 16, 17, and 18, Jesus is having a conversation and remember he says, go call your husband. I don't have a husband. That's right. You've had five husbands and now you're living with a guy. I think the reason she came there alone is because she had a reputation in the town. She was scorned by the town. She was scorned by the women. They didn't want to be with her. They didn't want to be seen or associated with her. So she was looked down upon by the Jews because of her her, uh, ethnic background and she was looked down upon by her own people because of her immorality. And I think there's one other thing that we can tell about her. If you look in verse 19, she's talking about the place where she worships. Her religion was a place, and it really wasn't adequate. It really wasn't doing it. It was a belief system based on a place on Mount Gerizim, on the temple there. It was actually built by Sanballat, if you remember from the studies on Nehemiah, built for his, his uh, son-in-law if he promised not to divorce Sanballat's daughter, that's where our family worships. We, we're, we're, we're good. We're there. But her, her worship, her religion wasn't adequate. It was place worship. So we can see those things. She had a hard life. She was a hard woman. She had gaps in her life. She had gaps built upon her, uh, her, her racial background. And because of her immorality, because of her upbringing maybe, gaps in her life because of her sin, because of her faulty, inadequate religion. <clears throat> she was a hard woman. She's probably a lost woman. You know, we have those gaps in our lives, don't we? Maybe not as severe as her, maybe so. But we all have our insecurities, those places of fear, those hidden compartments, those strongholds. We know that we've got those. Someone said that uh, humans are like onions. We're layered. And sometimes what we do is we try to layer or cover those little empty places in our lives that we don't want others to see. Those secret compartments that we have that we're either trying to fill or to cover up or maybe both. Maybe there's something we're ashamed of. Maybe there's something that we're a little bit embarrassed about. What if, what if people found this out about me or found that about me? Little insecurities or wounds. That hurt when we when they're exposed. Maybe there's things we just don't want to deal with, and I suppose the woman was tired of dealing with some of the problems in her life that she, for whatever reason, had appeared. Maybe they're her fault. Maybe it was her upbringing. Maybe it was the best that she could do. But she had gaps in her life, and she needed a conversation with Jesus. Why was Jesus there? was there, for one, because he was tired. You know, he's fully human, and human beings get tired. And he'd been walking for a while, he was in the heat of the day. So he was resting, sitting on the ledge of this well, but I think he was there more than just because he was tired. Why didn't he go around? Why did he send his disciples into town to buy food? He was there because of a divine appointment. He was there because of an evangelistic appointment. That was the real reason. He was seeking to get in the way of this Samaritan woman who was trudging to the well day after day, who desperately needed to have a conversation with him. So there they are, the Samaritan woman and the living God, fully human, fully divine, in the heat of the day, at the well that Jacob had built a thousand years before and a conversation ensues. So what can we learn from this? What can we learn from this conversation? There's a lot of things that are in here. This could have been a conversation with one of us. You know, maybe we're not as immoral. Maybe we don't have the problems to deal with as this woman did. But we all have gaps. And we all got these little places that we try to cover up with layers in our lives. So then what can we glean from this conversation that's before us? There's a lot of things. I've come up with five, so I'm going to give you five things I think that we can take away from this passage over the next couple of minutes. And the first one is this. When a person engages in a conversation with Jesus, there'll be an adjustment. There'll be an alteration of their desires. Look at the conversation. Look at how it develops. It starts out with physical thirst. And she's going there to draw water. And then Jesus engages her. And Jesus says, I've got some living water. Now, Jesus was leading it somewhere. But living water in those days could have easily meant spring water. It was better water. It was fresher water. It was more pure water than water that had just settled into a well. And that's why she said, oh, this well is deep. The spring water's down at the bottom of the well and you don't have anything to draw that water with. It's 150 feet deep down there. How are you going to get this this living water? And he moves her from physical water to refreshing physical water to water that leads to eternal life. And she's listening to this conversation and she's dialoguing with him. And he goes from physical thirst to real thirst. Hey, you're trying to quench your thirst by coming back here every day? That's not going to quench your deepest thirst. Hey, you think having five husbands and now maybe a sixth husband on the way? You think maybe by this pointing to this place where you worship that that's really going to meet your deepest needs? I don't think so. The woman was exposed morally. She was exposed religiously. And what happens is, as you see in this conversation, when Jesus gets in the way He rises up our priority list. He becomes more important over the things that are in our lives. Things that seem to matter to her culturally or ethnically or ethically, those hidden corners of our lives, they just don't seem to matter because our desire changes when we have a conversation with Jesus. You see as long as our desire to keep our layers of defense as long as our desire to not deal with the interpersonal relationships in our lives that we need to deal with are the circumstances that we know we should the prejudices of life the forgiveness the restitution that we need to make the integrity issues those secret robbers that are in all of our lives, as long as our desire is to maintain the layers and the gaps and the barriers, as long as that desire is stronger than our desire to please Christ and to allow him to be involved in our lives, then we'll continue to have gaps, we'll continue to to, uh, have layers, and there'll be barriers in our lives held up by fear or held up by pride. We will be clinging to our five husbands in our water jar. So maybe the, over the course of your next conversation with Jesus, maybe he'll identify some of those barriers like he's doing with this woman, some of those layers, some of the things that we have in our lives that hinder us from our worship and our walk with God, these silent robbers and these trivial pursuits that keep us from living water. Now, I know this, a real conversation with Jesus results in an adjustment of our desires. That's the first thing. Second thing is this. You can look at verses 16 through 19. When Jesus has a conversation with us, he meets us where we are. The truth comes out. It's all in the open. And that should be gratifying, but it's probably a little bit scary. He knows what's going on with this woman. And in the same way, he knows the things that are going on with us. But you know what? The beauty of it is he takes this woman as he finds him. I mean, look at the conversation. Go get your husband. I don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The one you're living with is not even your husband. She had a reputation. And Jesus didn't say, wait a minute. You need a lecture on purity. You need a lecture on morals. He didn't say, you clean up your act and then I'll talk to you. He didn't give her a self-help book to read. He didn't give her a a sin management course to go through. Instead, he met her there and he accepted her layers and all. She didn't really, at this point, know what was going on. But he was there loving her. We both know you're on your sixth lover. We know the moral mess you're in. A conversation with Jesus gets things out in the open. And he didn't let her get away trying to justify herself with this little half-truth saying, I have no husband. As I read this, it seems like maybe this woman is a little, well, she's actually, perhaps, a little bit relieved at what Jesus said. Because she's been going to this well for so long, she's probably grown tired of wondering what the people are saying about her, of what the rationalizations that she's having to come up with to self-justify her lifestyle, coming up with excuses. A frank, honest conversation, directed by Jesus, Right in the way of her life. Third thing is found in verse 20. It's talking about the place where she worships. You see, when Jesus gets in the way, person takes priority over place, relationship over religion. And that's my family church up there on that mountain. Well, that's, where, that's where we were worshiped. The, the, the Jews had their temple. That's where they worship. We have our temple. The Samaritans, that's where we worship. We both have our traditions. But you see, the, what had happened was the forms of their tradition and the places where their worship had become the focus. It had become an end in itself. And Jesus was out to end all that. You know, I think one of the reasons that he uh, ransacked the temple is that he was telling them, look, that's not where you worship. It's different now. I am the temple. It's not a place anymore. It is me, Jesus says. He is the temple. It's not where you worship. It's who you worship. We go over there. That's our our family church. You know what she was kind of saying? Without even knowing it, she was saying that her religion was more of, I would call it a spectator religion, more of a spectator sport. You know how you, you, if you're a spectator, you have your team and you root for your team and, and if your team does really, really well, you feel good and if your team does really, really poorly, you might feel bad or you have a favorite show that you watch on TV and you root for it and it makes you feel a certain way but there's, but there's no involvement. <clears throat> spectator religion. I don't know what you guys do after church but ever so often after church, we'll, we'll get a bite to eat and then I'll come home and I'll get out of my, my uniform and I'll put on something comfortable and I'll go to my leather chair and I'd lean back in my leather chair and I'd flip on Bob Ross. Joy of painting. Fascinating. He can take a paintbrush and put a little thalo blue on it, a little little white, and he can all of a sudden, do-do-do-do-do, and then all of a sudden you got little dabs and he's got happy clouds. And then he's kind of going, he's, he's, he's dabbing in some, some other Van Dyke brown and he's, he's, he's making rocks and he's making trees. And I'm going, how in the world does he possibly do that? You know, he puts a little... Whatever you want to do, boop. And all of a sudden, there's a river flowing through the middle of the picture. And it's fascinating. But you know what? I've never painted. I'm a spectator. I've never, I mean, it feels good to watch, but I don't really have any involvement in it. Spectator religion, what does that look like? Well, it could be selective someone kind of picks and chooses the parts of their religion that they want to follow and that they want to obey and that's what the samaritans had done they only accepted the first 5 books of the bible you know so they had they had uh adam and eve and abraham and noah and uh isaac and jacob and and moses and they had all those guys but they didn't have the psalms they didn 't have David, they didn't have more of the history because they didn 't believe that, so they were they were sharding out. they weren't getting a full picture, but to them it was good enough it 's another quality of spectator religion. good enough. I go to church. I help people. I feel real good about myself during Christmas. I must be good enough. I do my part. See, we worship over there on on the mountain, I go to the first church there. It's good enough, in a way, it's it's, it's like putting God in a compartment. It's like putting God in in a place. That's my religion over there. That's where God is. He's over there. You Jews, you worship over here. That's where your God is. He's over there. But it's the same God, according to the Samaritans, but not the Jews. Well, Jesus tells the woman that God can't be boxed in that we worship him in spirit, that he can't be put in a place, that he's not confined to a place. And when we engage in real conversation with Jesus, the compartments begin to disappear. Worship is not person to place. Worship is person to person. Perhaps that's why Jesus came, as a person. How would you characterize your relationship with Jesus? Is it personal See, a personal relationship with Jesus is when we let the King of the Universe get in the way of our lives. You remember that passage in Hebrews that says we are uh, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. You know, that's not a bunch of people up in the stands in heaven clapping and going, "You, out of boy, you go, you go." Those are people who have been through the trenches, who have been there before us, who are saying, "We have been there. We're not just spectators." And we want you to go through it too because you can make it. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Number four. Verse 9 and 19 and 29, that's pretty easy. It's this. When we have a real conversation with Jesus, our opinion of Jesus changes. A.W. Tozer said that, that great men and women of God think great thoughts of God. Do you know that one of the words used for worship is the word opinion, the word value, the word weight, heavy? So, what we think of God not only affects the quality of our worship, but our view of God affects our very lives. And when, when this woman was engaged by Jesus, look at how her opinion of him changed because of this conversation. Verse 9. You're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, as far as it went. Verse 19, Sir, surely you are a prophet. To verse 29, could this be the Christ? Look how our opinion changed. So let me ask you is your opinion of Jesus growing? Is it changing? Is there an increasing joy and appreciation and fascination in knowing Him? Does the duty of your worship turn to delight? Or is it conversation time? Finally, number five. And it's, it's sort of a summary of all the other ones put together. Number five is this. Look at verse 29. When we have a conversation with Jesus, the desire of our heart is renewed and enlarged. This is why she left her water jar. She left it, she went to town, and she marveled at what had happened in this conversation with Jesus. He engaged the woman. It mattered. You know, the progression from physical water to living water. Then she was much more thirsty than she thought and she needed that water that springs up to eternal life that Jesus was was giving her because her deepest thirst, her longing or desire was not met by physical water. It wasn't met by her five husbands. It wasn't met met by the place they worship. It was met through a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That is the heart of Christianity. That is the gospel. It's a relationship. And you know what the most important quality is in a relationship? One of the most. Is the quality of desire. I mean, think about it. If you've ever been rejected in a relationship. The person that you desire doesn't desire you anymore. How do you feel? You don't feel, I'm told you don't feel good. You feel worthless. Desire. But what if you're with someone who you really want to be with and they really want to be with you? That's what we want because the desire is there. What a quality in a relationship. And we've got Valentine's Day coming up and I don't know how many of you go out and buy cards. You know, think about being the guy that writes these cards. You know, he, just, he sits at his desk and he comes up with these, these pithy phrases or these statements or these, these, these paragraphs or whatever it might be. Uh, uh, these warm and fuzzy things to give you this warm and fuzzy feeling. And then he puts them out there to sell. So they're just kind of there. But say you come along and you're looking for a card to give to someone that's really, really important to you and you read the cards that the writer had had written and they're warm and they're fuzzy. Then you come across a card and you pick it up and read it and the card expresses exactly what you wanted to say. Maybe tears well up, it's so emotional because it really, really hits home. Now to the writer of that card, it might mean something but it might just be a phrase that you make a couple of bucks on. But to you, It expresses what you want to say, and that card means something very, very special. It's real now, because it's set in the context of a personal, meaningful relationship that's full of encounters and conversation and desire. It's personal. And Jesus was there with the woman, speaking the truth in the context of love, meeting her at her deepest need. What an impact. She went there because she desired water from the well, and she left there, uh, left her jar there at the well. Not only that, if you read the passage a little bit more, she went to the town to tell the people about Jesus, and it's the very town made up of the people who had scorned her. It didn't matter. The impact of this conversation was so strong that, so what? if they didn't speak well of her. She went there and she told them about this conversation with Jesus. And as a result, the town invited Jesus to come and to stay with them for a couple of days. What an impact. And that's what we see when Jesus gets in the way. It's not a story and it's not a fable. It's not a place. It's real and it's powerful and it's personal. It's the gospel She went to the well to satisfy her thirst and she left as a worshiper of the living God because she didn't need her water jar for what Jesus offered. So think about this. When when was the last time that you sat down with the word of God and had one of those conversations with Jesus? Let me encourage you to do that. I encourage you to keep doing it because I know many of you do. When you do, you can expect that when you have this regular conversation through the word of God and prayer, then Jesus will get in the way of your life and things will happen. So let me encourage you with that. If you want to make a resolution, you don't have to call it a resolution. Just let me encourage you to to, to put down your water jar just for a minute or two and have a regular conversation with Jesus. Open the word and Pray. And let him get in the way of your life like never before. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this conversation. We thank you for uh, how just as, as, as you sent your son to meet the woman there who gave her eternal life, so you have had divine appointments with so many of us that you have led us and promised us and guaranteed us this eternal life. Lord, we don't want to miss out on conversations Help us to have that conversation, to give us that desire to have the conversation with your son. Do it in his honor and for his name.